Good morning. <clears throat> Having a little throat issues this morning, so hopefully we can get through this. But uh, hopefully you all had a, a Merry Christmas. Visit family and friends, and we have some that are away who are visiting family and, and friends, even for the new year. Um, as I often think about, and uh, during this time of year, it's a wonderful time to, to get together with family and friends. Um, it's, it's a time to look forward to, time to reminisce and things. But also, too, we, um, as I do often pray, even in church here, is that there's times, this time of year is very difficult for a lot of people. And it's, it's difficult in, in many ways. Some people have lost uh, their spouse and when this time of year comes around, it can be very, very difficult. A lot of people struggle with depression, with anxiety, especially around this, this time of year. Thank you, Charlie. And so um, with that, it's not just because of that time of year where, that I'm uh, going to be preaching on biblical counseling, but um, it's with that in mind that we're going to look at a passage in Scripture that, that deals with how to really approach uh, counseling individuals and really, as the title of the, the message says, providing help and hope to the true need. There's a lot of people out there that, that have needs and have needs that they don't even know uh, they, um, they need help with. And so really, I'm going to approach this in, in the manner of looking at the, the individual verses 28 and 29 overall, but I'm going to focus in on the passage, verse 28, and specifically the section that says, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. Because last time I addressed the, the, the beginning of the passage where it said we proclaim him. And this morning we'll look at what it means to admonish and teach with all wisdom, what Paul is trying to drive there. So really, counseling provides us with um, many opportunities, opportunities to, to share the gospel to people. But also, it provides opportunities to just listen, to, to listen to somebody who is in need. And um, quite often, you know, in situations, you can probably recall to mind where you have ministered to someone, or maybe be thinking about or praying to minister to someone concerning a situation that you just sit there and listen um, because there is a necessary time to, to grieve over um, a certain situation. But also, you know, counseling situations aren't always uh, over something that is very grievous, that grieves the soul. It can be very, you know, in, in such an informal way, you may be meeting with friends or family members and uh, a certain topic comes up about a job or and they just uh, seeking counsel on how to make a decision regarding uh, a job and what God would, would have for that person in mind. And I'm sure you, you have all found yourselves in situations like that. I know I have. And um, I just pray that you can uh, find yourself even more in that, but also at, at opportunities to, to minister, to bring to bear the word of God upon a person's heart and a person's mind in a, in a certain situation. Because we really don't want to find ourselves in a situation as, as Job's friends. If you are familiar with, with Job and his, his uh, 
situation, he's, his friends try to come and address his, his issues and try to, quote-unquote, counsel him according to what they thought was right. And quite often, they were really um, doing a disservice to him. They weren't really ministering to him the word of God, but they were instead um, tripping over themselves, really, in, in a lot of ways, sticking their, their foot in their mouth. And we don't really want to find ourselves in that situation. We, were, we, we are equipped as believers to be able to uh, give God's wisdom to people in certain situations. Some are able to do that better than others, but we ought to always strive and be ready to, in, in a certain way, as in Peter refers to, is to give a defense for the hope that is within us. Because some of that counseling may be uh, talking to someone about Christ for the first time and defending the faith, per se, the truth of the gospel, rather than false teaching. So this morning, my purpose here this morning is to first uh, set forth the, the second pillar of biblical counseling. The first pillar was that I set forth about two months ago of biblical counseling is that biblical counseling really does have a high view of God. But more importantly, it actually communicates the true message, the true message of the gospel. And then the second pillar is that biblical counseling imparts biblical instruction. This instruction is, is, means that it's describing the manner of Paul's preaching and his ministry. And so if you were to look down at uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, it says, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and, pre- every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. But first, we must ask ourselves, well, what's, what's going on here? Well, what's going on is, we'll go back up to verse 24 and we'll read from verse 24 on through to the, to the end of the section there, because then it will give us a better understanding what Paul is, where Paul is coming from here to the Colossian church. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my, share, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. So this morning, as I said, we're going to look at the second pillar that holds up a biblical approach to counseling, and that biblical counseling imparts biblical instruction. 
And then secondly, I'd like to also show that the Word of God is sufficient to provide help and hope to the real need. The Word of God is sufficient to provide help and hope to the real need of an individual. So God really uses the ministry of His Word through imperfect people to accomplish His perfect work of salvation, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Again, God uses the ministry of His Word through, the, through imperfect people to accomplish, essentially, His work of salvation. But I think it's fair to ask, before we get any further into this specific verse, is what's going on here in, with, in Colossae and Colossians and what Paul is addressing and why he has written to the Colossian church? As I noted, Paul wrote to the the Colossians probably around the the time period of A.D. 60 to 62. And in fact, Paul was writing from a prison cell. He was writing from prison with such joy that you can see if you were to read, especially the, the first chapter, of what has happened. A salvation that has come to some and they're walking by faith. Following Christ. And Colossae was really located in a Roman province of Asia, which is now modern day Turkey. And most of the population is Gentile during this, time, during this period of time, but it's also important to, to note there was a significant Jewish settlement within this, this colony. And it's important to note this is because the, there was what's called the, the Colossian heresy. And there's many aspects of this heresy that we're going to to address. But this heresy was really Gnostic in its nature, with flavors of Jewish legalism and pagan mysticism. So the Jewish legalism they would have brought in with some forms of the Old Testament law, and basically is trying to establish some some form of works-based righteousness or salvation. And then you had a pagan mysticism, which brought in um, feelings of knowing, well, really subjective views of knowing God, such as by feelings and things of that nature. But also, too, I mentioned Gnosticism, which is the belief that God is ultimately good, but matter is evil. But also, <coughs> excuse me, Gnostics believe that Jesus he did disseminate from God, but he was less than God. So this uh, Gnostic heresies that were floating around at this time, they believed in, in Jesus, but they didn't believe that he was God. But it's also important to note that this, this Gnosticism was, would carry tenets that believed that there was this special knowledge for enlightenment or salvation. And there was probably some other uh, nuances of this Gnosticism that was, um, that was being held on to with great conviction by some. But those are the, the three main points that we ought to see from that. But it's also, it should, be, it should be pointed out, too, that with this heresy comes many errors. There, there were a lot of errors that, that were communicated in this Gnostic heresy. The first error 
was really an error of false philosophy. An error of, of false philosophy. And you can see this error in, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. So if you want to look there, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8. And notice a few things as we, as we read through here. First, first of all, the, the most important thing you should, you, should, you should see that it says the word, at least in the New American Standard translation, it says captive. Notice the word captive. So verse 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. Here we have a look at this error, this error of false philosophy. And what was happening? People were taken captive. They were being held. And this, this word captive is used in, in really terms of plundering a, a cargo ship. So these these people who believed in this philosophy were being held captive as one was holding a, a cargo ship captive, plundering it. And most likely the reference here to philosophy means the philosophy, which is in reference to there was some sort of specific philosophy that these Gnostics were, were teaching and trying to uh, disseminate among uh, the, the Colossians here in the Colossian church. And it's, it's really with these three characteristics that we ought to see this, this false philosophy. There was empty deception. The middle of verse 8. An empty deception. There was vain falsehood portrayed as truth. So there were these false teachers that were communicating some sort of what they were saying was truth, which was in fact false. But also, we should see too that there was what's called, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world. So the elementary principles of the world were the were the what was driving this falsehood. It was an elemental religion, a spirit as the subject matter. And you could, you could say that there was probably in reference to verse, verse 18, these worship of angels. So there's this false philosophy that was taking many people captive with the characteristic of empty deceit, elementary principles. But the important thing to see is that it was according to elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. If you are familiar with the book of Colossians, it's really a defense or you could say is a Christological book. And it's, it's a book where Paul really delves into the, the teachings on who Christ is. And so it's important to note that that's why Paul mentions this here. And then and certainly right afterwards, Paul mentions that defense of who Christ really is. So, 
these elementary principles in which these people were taken captive by were not, um, were not according to Christ, which is in verse 9, he says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And really, what, what Paul is really driving at, he's going after a lot of the falsehood, as, as I mentioned, of these Gnostic beliefs. They, didn't believe, they believed in Jesus, but they didn't believe that he was, he was God. And it only makes sense that, that Paul would say that in verse 9. But I would say also, too, there was this air of legalism. So not only this, this air of false philosophy, but there was an air of legalism. And the reason why I'm, I'm mentioning the, these in, in great detail before we get into the, to the main um, the section is because these... This is what the Colossian church was dealing with. And the Apostle Paul had come to, to, to write this letter and to really address this, the falsehood that was, was coming at these Colossians. So there's this air of legalism. Verse 16 and 17, Therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. So then it continues on in verse 17, but really we have these strict restrictions of eating and drinking around the religious calendar. And some of that may, may sound familiar to you, and I'm sure it has 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 to do with in reference to the mosaic deity dietary laws or unusual trends of heresy that that are brought about here so really what it is is that these uh, this is where the the Jewish settlement is important to note that their influence was bringing bringing about an area of legalism so essentially what is being said here is that these these Jews, this Jewish um, Judaism, this legalism that was, that was being carried about, these people were trying to bring about some sort of righteousness in their own life based on these strict eating and drinking restrictions. Now, it's not, it's not this, he's not saying that it's bad to to be disciplined in our eating, but it is um, essentially an error when a person begins to practice certain things, having, having strict restrictions on their eating and drinking around this idea of t- trying to obtain some sort of righteousness, some sort of works-based righteousness. But also, too, there was this air of angel worship, and I'll just mention that just because I referred to it all already, verse 18 and 19, that there was worship of, of angels. And then there was also this air of asceticism. So man made rules to gain favor with God. So this may be the most familiar to some of you as, as an air in, um, in what people try to do to to gain some sort of position in, with favor with God. They make some rules or establish some system of rules to gain favor with God. Verse 20 through 23. It says, If we have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, 
Why as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and, <clears throat> and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So here you, here you see, Paul says that these self-made religions, this self-abasement, some sort of abuse or abasement of the body, to neglect the body, as, as he referred to, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, was being done in a way to, to gain favor with God. But he says that it is, it is of no, no value at all. So he had the false philosophies, these, uh, this air of legalism, this air of angel worship, and this air of asceticism. So I want to just pause there and just think about this, all of this is what's going on in the Colossian church. But these things are true today. These errors of false philosophy, people try to um, dispense false teaching concerning Christ, concerning the church, concerning salvation. And there's errors of legalism. People try to develop these, this system of beliefs that will gain favor with God, and even worship of angels and and asceticism. And I, and I mention this, again, I, I stress this, is because mainly to, to, to stress the idea that even some here today may, may be trying to save themselves based on some sort of system that they've developed, that you have developed, or maybe one of your friends or family members have, have developed to gain favor with God. That's really the issue. We all know that, that God has, has created men, and in Genesis chapter 3, that we, there was the catastrophic fall. And what happened? There was this great chasm that was created, but in God's creation, us as, as His creation, created in God's image, we are, we are designed to worship God. But in our fallenness, in people's fallenness, you can maybe even think of the ways that before um, you have been born again, the way that you tried to gain favor with God. Was there some sort of false philosophy that you were um, convinced about? Was there some sort of legalism? Was there a system of, of rules that you set up? That you, in your mind, you thought that you are convinced that you are born again? Or was there some sort of worship of angels or some sort of false god? Or were you, were you self-abasing yourself, denying yourself of some food or, or denying yourself of some practice for the sake of gaining favor with God? 
Now, I should say, again, that, you know, in the, in the Christian life, there, is, there are certain things that we ought not to do. And one of, the, one of those f- facts is, is noted in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, you see this, this instruction um, to the Thessalonian church where the, these new believers had come to Christ, and it says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, that you excel still more. So please don't say, or please don't hear that I'm not saying that we should not sin or we should not put off our old self as being, as being followers of Christ. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is, is, that, is that basing our salvation on any sort of favor or any sort of philosophy or false religion or any sort of special rules that we place on our life that is gaining some sort of favor with God. Because, in a sense, you are saying that the work of Christ means nothing, and the work that you're doing means everything. So, as, as, a, as followers of Christ, we ought not to to follow in is what we um, in in our old self and our, our old patterns. In, in the book of Ephesians, Paul says that we ought to do what? We ought to put off our old self and put on the new self. It's the idea of taking off the old clothes and putting on new clothes. So we have these errors that we have examined. And let's go back to verse 28 where we can finally begin to look at this ministry that that Paul had set out on. And that's really what Paul highlights here. It's really his philosophy of ministry. In verse 24, you see that he was suffering with, with great affliction. And you can see that throughout the New Testament. He refers to it often. But also, too, we should see that, that Paul was what? He was a minister according to the stewardship of God. So this wasn't just something that, that Paul had, had given to, um, or that, that God had given to Paul to just you know, be ho-hum about. Or, also, too, it wasn't something that Paul just decided to do. It was a stewardship. He was convinced of that. It was a stewardship of God, meaning that this, this calling to be, to be a minister of the gospel was entrusted to him. It was entrusted to him, and he was fulfilling that call. And what does he say there? It was for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. So he, he recognized that it was for the benefit of the church, so he might fully carry out the proclamation of the gospel. So just stop there and think about this. Think about the stark contrast between what we looked at with these false religions, these errors that the Colossians were being tempted with. 
compared to the authenticity, the truthfulness of the gospel ministry, the gospel ministry through the Apostle Paul. He was coming to preach Christ. And he had no, no other ambition or no other aim yet to, to carry out except that people would be found to be complete in Christ. That was his goal. That they would be found complete in Christ. So the three pillars of biblical counseling that we can draw from this, and, and I know this isn't directly addressing Biblical counseling, it's in the context, as we, we talked about, a, a letter written to the church, and we have Paul's philosophy of ministry. But essentially what's, what we have here is Paul is describing how he has set out to minister to people through the preaching of God's Word. And this is the same thing that happens in counseling. You sit down with someone with an issue, And you set out to proclaim the Word of God and bring to bear upon their life His truth. And so this is the line, this is the parallel um, point that I'm making. That, yes, Paul is is setting out to, to preach the Gospel and to minister to the church. But at the same time, Paul is also, in his ministry, counseling people according to God's to God's truth. But first I want to review the first pillar that biblical counseling proclaims the message of truth. And Paul says in verse 28, he says, we proclaim Him. Who's this Him? It's really this, Paul announces the the grace of God and truth. It's a proclamation of this mystery. A mystery that, that Paul highlights in verse 25 through 27, the mystery that refers to Christ, this mystery that was hidden for ages. Just think about the, the, the men and the women in the Old Testament who were waiting. The men and women in the Old Testament who were waiting for their Savior, the Messiah. We can stand here today and look back and read of the accounts in the Old Testament, and even the accounts in the New Testament, that in what we recently celebrated the birth of Christ, it, this was really a, 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 a tremendous culmination of history. In Genesis 3, you have this, this idea of that, that Christ was going to come to crush the serpent's head. And this was beginning to be a, a part of the fulfillment of, of what God had promised not only in Genesis 3, but also throughout the Old Testament through the Old Testament prophets. This mystery, this mystery that was now made known to not only the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And most of us, if not all of us, ought to praise God for that, because most, if not all of us here are Gentiles. That God would care to to send His Son on our behalf. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not only for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. 
That this mystery would then be carried into what, was, what is called, referred to as, this inheritance, this, this indwelling of the Holy Spirit. These riches in Christ. So really there was this great anticipation of this mystery. And then there was this where Jesus had come and the Holy Spirit had come and God placed the Holy Spirit in men and women who had put their trust in Christ. And there was this process of sanctification that was beginning to happen. A sanctification that would ultimately lead to what Paul refers to glorification. This glorification, most specifically, the hope of glory. You see, there's this, this mystery that was revealed. There was hope. So I'm going to stop here and just talk a little bit about hope in reference to counseling. The message of hope. Really, without this this mystery revealed, without a hope, this hope of glory, we really don't have a message to communicate. We have no message. It would be vain, it would be empty. And that's really what these, these, these people that were chasing these erroneous teachings of false philosophies, of legalism, They were chasing after something that was empty, something that was vain, something that was leading them in their attempt, they thought, was on the road, the narrow road. But where in fact that this approach to life, they were on the broad way. And many people can be found here today self-deceived, having a false hope, but without God. Hoping in their works. Hoping in the good deeds that they do. Hoping in the good favors that they do for grandma or grandpa. Hoping in the good things that they may do for their their neighbor. Mowing their lawn. Taking out the trash. Trusting that their, their work at the Salvation Army would be enough. I don't know if you've ever talked to anybody about Christ and they said, well, I hope I've done enough good when I die. What kind of hope is that? There's too many people living that way. Too many people are living in a way that they, they're, they're, they think they're doing enough good and hopefully that has filled up the cup of good deeds enough that it would satisfy and find favor with God. But where in fact they're pursuing empty and vain things. They're pursuing empty and vain favor with God trying to please God on behalf of themselves instead of claiming what Christ has done on their behalf. 
So this is the hope that we ought to share with people. This is the hope that we can communicate with our family and with our friends, with our colleagues. You see, this this hope of glory is what we ought to all be looking forward to. I'm always reminded of this this hope of glory. I um, find 1 Thessalonians is is very short, but I always find a, a very fondness with it. And I think it's because of the, the clear message of, um, of conversion in the, the end of chapter 1. Where you have the, the, the Thessalonians that were living hopeless lives. They were pursuing idols. But then what happened? You may recall in Acts chapter 17 where Paul came to, to preach the gospel, caused a great uproar, as, as we read, uh, in fact, today. And you can continue to read um, what had happened. But here we see the result of this preaching of the gospel. It says they did what? They had a reception, but they turned to God from idols. This is repentance. This is true repentance. They, they did not try, they turned from these false philosophies, these legalistic ways that they were following, from these idols that they worshipped to serve a living and true God. And then what were they doing? They were waiting. It's what we all ought to do. This hope of glory, this glorification that will happen at the end is what is referred to here in 1 Thessalonians in the, in the sense that we, as those who are born again, trusting in Christ with our life, we have turned from our idols to serve a, a living and true God. We ought to be waiting, waiting for this one, His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. You see, Paul simply states that they were not rescued from the wrath to come by their good works. They were rescued. We will be rescued. This hope of glory. We will be rescued from the wrath to come because of Christ when He comes. Not because any any good work that we have done, but the wondrous work of Christ, what He has done on our behalf. So if you're in 1 Thessalonians, turn back to Colossians 28. Continuing to review the first pillar, and I'm only doing this to a greater extent because we have some people who weren't here for the first time. So they proclaim Christ, but they also proclaim it to every man. No man is excluded. Verse 28 says, admonishing every man and teaching every man. No man, no person. And really the word man there is, isn't a reference to the male. It's, it just, it's a general term for a person. It's not partial. This message of salvation, the gospel, this mystery that had come <clears throat> to, to bear fruit in the coming of Christ was not partial. To any man, 
to any woman. No man is ignored. I should say, no man is ignored, yet plenty ignore the message of the Son of Man. There are lots of people walking around with a false hope of salvation, yet they completely ignore the message of the Son of Man. So they proclaim Christ, they proclaim it to every man, and it's proclaimed for eternal reasons. What are these reasons? One is, as I said, hope. But secondly, and very important, is found in chapter 1, verse 13, where Paul says, For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And as we saw in 1 Thessalonians, here Paul describes more of what this salvation or this redemption in Christ looks like. And he continues on, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And this is key. Salvation has come through Christ. How? He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. It's all a work of God. He rescued and transferred. They're no longer in the domain of darkness, but in the kingdom of His beloved Son. And oh, what a wondrous thing that has happened in this rescuing, in this transfer. You see this redemption bought back from this slave market of sin. And what happens? Forgiveness. Forgiveness of sin. Sin is very burdensome. I'm sure you have experienced carrying around the weight of sin in your life. You can recall... Maybe you're carrying some around today, this morning. How burdensome it is. It's like heavy chains. Walking around with a great weight. Always being reminded. Yet through Christ, through Jesus Christ, who has rescued us from the domain of darkness, we have this forgiveness of sin. This mystery that has been revealed. Our beloved Jesus. Forgiveness. Forgiveness through Christ. And now you can say, Lord, forgive me of my sin. I sinned against you. Please forgive me of my sin. They may turn from it and follow Christ. Empty works. Don't afford that. Any kind of works-based salvation will not get you to that place. Some people that you know may have lived 60, 70 years believing that all of the good works that they have done for the church, for their neighbors, 
think that they have bought favor with God. Yet it is the work of Christ in our submission and humility to His Lordship that we could just simply ask, O Lord, I'm a sinner in need of Christ. Forgive me of my sin. So this proclamation of etern- for eternal reasons that happens with, within biblical counseling that should happen is not only communicating hope to people, a hope that is sure, but also a redemption where we find forgiveness of sin. But also, too, there's this aspect of people understanding that they have purpose. No longer searching for what they ought to be doing in life. Because just as the, as the Thessalonians, what were they convinced about? They were convinced that they were there to do what? To serve God. That was their purpose in life. That was the will of God. In very simple terms. So Christ is proclaimed to every man so that every man may be complete in him and know how they ought to live. So the Apostle Paul preached the gospel, proclaimed the gospel with this proclaiming the message of truth, proclaiming proclaiming Christ to every man for eternal reasons so that people would know how they ought to live. No longer wandering around in darkness, but finally knowing how to live and who to live for. And that is Christ. That is God. What a blessing. What a blessing that is. So finally, let's look at this second pillar of biblical counseling. Through the ministry of Paul's preaching, we find here that he admonished every man and taught, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom. Paul did not limit his instruction, nor did he squander opportunity to communicate God's truth. Some, as I said, didn't, didn't like to hear it. I'm sure you have, can recall in your mind situations where you have shared the gospel with somebody and have, were quickly um, shut down or made fun of or... Um, I know that I, I have, I've been in interactions like that. And certainly Paul was. Paul was in the same situation, although he, he found himself not only with um, quite, quite often causing uprisings and being thrown in prison. But what is this? What is this admonishment? What's happening here? So the second pillar, this pillar which biblical counseling provides biblical instruction that imparts both admonishment and teaching. 
admonishing and teaching. What is this? These words, admonishing and teaching, function in the modifying role. What that means is, is if we see, if we look back here, we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man. So essentially what's happening here is admonishing and, and teaching is further explaining what this proclamation was and the manner in which Paul proclaimed this truth. So again, it, de- it describes the manner in which the Apostle Paul preached the gospel or proclaimed Christ. So what is this manner? So the idea of admonishment or admonishing is, carries the idea of warning or reproof. So it's really to notify of danger or a potential harm or risk in simple terms. But then there's this aspect of teaching which carries the idea of training or giving instruction. So let's back up. This manner in his preaching was admonishment, warning those, but also training or teaching. And so this ought to be the same in any sort of biblical counseling that that you do. I know as, as a father to two, two children, um, I really try to, to work hard at, try to find myself in both of these camps of not only admonishing my, my children or warning them of danger to come, but also training them. But this is, this is what ought to, to happen in counseling. So further, teaching is really the the positive side. Teaching, for example, what Paul did in chapter 1, verse 15 through 19, he taught of the deity or the supremacy or the preeminence of Christ. But then there's also a negative aspect is is this admonishment, this admonishing each man. And we looked at a form of admonishment where Paul was warning the Colossian church of this heresy. These heresies that were being touted by false teachers. So essentially admonishment here means to counsel about avoidance or cessation of an improper course of conduct. To counsel about avoidance or cessation of an improper course of conduct. And this term is actually used throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, especially in in Paul's writings. And one use is, is used in Acts chapter 20, verse 31, where it says, Therefore, Be on the alert. Remember that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And if you remember Acts chapter 20, you may not, but it's okay. I'll give you a little summary. The end of Acts 20 is where the Ephesian elders and Paul were parting ways. And here was was Paul saying that he was... um, 
or he's giving instruction, telling them to be on the alert, warning them, and to remember that night, that night and day for a period of three years, he did not cease to admonish each one with tears. So there was this great concern that, that Paul carried about himself with this admonishment. He wasn't, this doesn't mean that he was heavy-handed or heavy-fisted or trying to be um, insensitive. Because I think that you know, a lot of people think that admonishment, you know, I guess, you know, it may come across as insensitive, and it should be, especially in the, in the realm of, of, of counseling, it should be concern, uh, communicated with, with deep concern, just as Paul did with the Ephesian elders, that he, he admonished them for three years, not only the, the elders, but the Ephesian church, with tears. I mean, as, as parents, you know, do we, do we admonish our children, warn them of their sinful habits with tears? Have you ever admonished someone? Have you ever warned someone? One of your friends? One of your colleagues? Pleading. Pleading with them. With tears. Warning them of their life of destruction. Second Thessalonians 3.15 also gives another example. And I think it's, it's worthy to examine that to a greater degree. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 15. It says that, Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Well, who are they talking about? What is going on here? Well, if you look in verse 6, Paul is giving a command here. Paul is giving a command. And in verse 7 he says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. But what is happening? If anyone does not obey our instruction... So what's happening here is that, that Paul is giving, giving instruction about a certain aspect in life. This aspect, of, it's identified in verse 10. It says, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. So there were people in the Thessalonian church that they were not willing to, to work. And so he's addressing this, this issue. And so he says that if no one is, is going to obey this instruction, we're to do what? To admonish them. To warn them, confront them of their sinful ways. Because certainly God has created all of us, as we're able, I should say, to work. Some people are born without the ability to do that. But in general, as human beings made in the image of God, an aspect of our life ought to be to work. And so, fleshing out in, in biblical counseling, it might, in, it might involve confronting somebody who is lazy, who is not working, who is not providing for his family as he ought. But then there's this teaching aspect 
going back to Colossians, teaching every man. Simply instruction. Colossians 2, 20, 2 verse 7 says it's instruction on being established in the faith. And again, it's used, this term is used in Colossians 3, verse 16. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival. I'm sorry, I'm reading the wrong verse. Chapter 3, verse 16. I was reading chapter 2, 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts. So there's this idea of brothers and sisters in Christ doing the same thing. Admonishing, warning. But the aspect here that is, that is very unique is that it was with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So the application of this is that the Word of God provides help and hope to the true need. And I want, to, I want you to ask yourself, are you heeding God's instruction? Are you heeding God's instruction? Has God warned you about something that you refuse to listen to? And there's plenty of times, it's, and it's easy to read a passage of Scripture and think about somebody else as you're reading it. Where, in fact, we ought to, um, you know, first be reading to, to understand and to know God. But many times, at least it's been my experience, is reading the Scriptures that God confronts me with something in my life. So I ask you this. Is there something that you're not heeding in God's instruction? Has God warned you about something, a sinful pattern in your life, that you refuse to be obedient to? Pride? Sinful speech? Doing good works for God's, to gain God's favor? Building up some sort of self-righteous framework in your mind that you are better than someone else? These are all the things that do, that do not bring favor from God. Sinful speech such as gossip, slander. And I also submit to you, secondly, we can be used by God to help others, to help warn them. God places people in individuals' lives for various reasons. God may have you to, to warn someone about their sinful pattern, or God may have placed you in someone's life to persuade them, to bring, to bear God's truth, to persuade them, to bring them to the point of 
Like in Scripture, what must I do to be saved? But also, too, God can use us to encourage the faint-hearted. A lot of faint-hearted people in this world. Some people try to cover it up through uh, some sort of um, like raising your chest or acting bold or being um, very forthright. Where, in fact, some of those may be faint-hearted. Pursuing a vain life through their job, through all of the organizations that they may be involved in, thinking that there are some sort of special purpose, where a special person, but when in fact they're lost. But I would say that one thing as Christians, as we ought to do, if we are committed to um, the gospel and the gospel ministry and caring for people, loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourself, we ought to give thought to this on how to encourage the faint-hearted. Because I say that because that there, there's times in life where, where God is really teaching and instructing you and you are, you know, by, by His grace being very disciplined in life. Yet there's, there's other people that are struggling in life. And I'm speaking of our brothers and sisters in Christ in particular. There, there's, there's people that are struggling with certain things, whether theological or certain temptations that they have, and if we, if we go around and, and really um, can, I guess what I'm saying is we can be zealous without knowledge. We can be so zealous for the kingdom of God and just trample over so many people. You know, go around like a bull in a china shop and really run people over instead of coming alongside and encouraging the faint-hearted and these faint-hearted people might be fearing something or doubting something in their life. I know when I was uh, f- you know, newly born again, I was in college, and I didn't really understand a lot about um, what God expected, but I knew that, that God had done something in my life. You know, there, there were times where I, I doubted you know, God's work in my life. And there, there's, there's so many people in this world that struggle with, Doubting salvation. You know, has, has God really worked in my life that I am born again? I have been given a new heart. That, I, that my old heart of, of stone has been taken out and I have been given a new heart of flesh. There's so many people that, that struggle with doubting the work of Christ in their life. And we ought to be more sensitive, more aware. Not saying you aren't. And if you are, that's, that's it's tremendous. It's a tremendous thing to, to be thinking about, as in Philippians chapter 2, to be thinking of others more 
Consider others more important than yourself. But also, too, also we should be willing to come alongside to instruct someone, give someone counsel who is weak, who lacks spiritual or moral strength. And it kind of relates to what I was addressing above. There's people that are just downtrodden, going through difficult times. They understand what the Bible says, instructs about having joy, having hope. But still more, they just lack spiritual strength. And I would say that you know, one, one aspect of that is they could, they could be in sin. In 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses the, the church and essentially unleashes a, a litany of sinful manners that, they were, uh, co- that were contributing to their um, spiritual weaknesses. And so, yeah, someone, someone could be experiencing a lack of a spiritual strength because some sin in her life. But I would say that God would, you know, I would say and would hope that God would provide you opportunities to recognize that in someone's life and to encourage them along the way. So the last part of this is that God would, or the, I should back up. The last part of this, this pillar is not only admonishing and teaching, that this biblical instruction comes through admonishing and teaching, but also it comes through this wisdom, wisdom from God. In all, with all wisdom, Paul says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. Paul continues to describe what his proclamation of Christ looked like. He plumbed the depths of God's Word, God's wisdom displayed perfectly in Jesus Christ, who is creator and sustainer of all things, Savior of all who call upon Him. So this wisdom that Paul describes here is wisdom that God imparts to those who are close to him. Not wisdom from special knowledge of the false teachers. So this wisdom comes from God. James chapter 3 is very clear and gives a a clear instruction on this wisdom. But Colossians does too, and Paul does as well. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 9, it says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So we see here that, that Paul set out to, to pray. Paul set out to pray for God's wisdom in a person's life. And there's other examples as well, but as time nears, nears the end, I just want to point out this. That Paul prayed for wisdom. For what purpose? 
Why was, why was Paul instructing in, in, his, in his preaching and proclamation? And why should a biblical counselor use uh, this wisdom? Well, it should be to a certain end. What end is this? Verse 10, chapter 1. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all aspects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. This is what he's talking about. So that we may present every man complete in Christ. Every man complete in Christ. Someone who has been born again, committed to following Christ, following Him without condition. No matter the cost, no matter what others may say. So today we looked at the, the pillar, two pillars of biblical counseling. That biblical counseling involves the message of the gospel. Biblical counseling communicates the true message, the true message of salvation. And secondly is that biblical counseling imparts biblical instruction. Admonishing, warning, teaching. But have it be with, with all wisdom. And may God give, give you the grace to not only recognize maybe some sin in your life that um, the wonderful counselor would counsel you with, and sanctify you by His Spirit, that may He give you grace to counsel others according to His Word and His standard. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank You for this day. Thank You for the truth from Your Word. Thank You that You have given us uh, uh, from Your Word a message of salvation, a message that is, that is true and that we can hope in. Not hope in anything of empty or false teaching, O Lord. But may we hope in the work of Christ and what He has done on our behalf. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.